Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked Podcast. Uh, we've got a special guest today, Adam Creighton, who's uh, the Washington correspondent for The Australian and also a contributor to Sky News Australia, which is, uh, is very exciting. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks very much for having me, Ian. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for your wonderful review of my book. Uh, it's It's been really, really great to see all the positive response to it. Uh, it helped dramatically helped to get the get it into australia and kind of an awareness of it down there which i hugely appreciate yeah so thank you for that no i hope lots of people read it it was excellent i <laughs> appreciate it uh so my first question for you was when when covid first started you know this is back march 2020 what were your kind of initial thoughts and reactions to it were you skeptical of the policies we were putting in were you supportive of them and and has there been any kind of adjustments or changes in your thinking over time yeah certainly at the start i was actually very scared about the whole thing going back to march 2020 because i knew a bit of history i knew about the spanish flu i knew how bad these things could be and so i was kind of expecting the worst i mean i was so scared i actually shifted my money out of a one of the smaller financial institutions that I was in and put it in a larger bank. Uh, so I was just worried about, you know, what was going to happen to the global economy. Um, of course, as it turned out, those those fears were, you know, were kind of ill-founded, at least as far as, as far as the virus went. And I guess because I was so concerned, I was checking every day uh, the publicly available statistics on, you know, Worldometer and the various US uh, government websites. And it became pretty clear to me by the end of March, at least, that we were massively overreacting to this thing, uh, that there was a climate of hysteria. Mm -hmm. And I felt as though it was my responsibility as a journalist um, uh, to point that out. Um, but that was quite a risky move um, because, as I say, there was a climate of hysteria and it wasn't until the middle of April, uh, the 13th or 14th of April, that I wrote in my weekly column in The Australian uh, that we were overreacting to an unremarkable virus. <laughs> and you can imagine how that went over. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, because it really was, that was kind of peak hysteria. And I pointed out things like the number of deaths every year, you know, 60 million odd every year, that the numbers, that the infection fatality ratios were likely very, very low, you know, drawing on some of the work of John Ioannidis, um, a very eminent professor in this field, and he made a lot of sense to me. So, I, you know, I quoted him. Uh, so yeah, so I, so I guess I changed my view pretty quickly and then I, you know, I became a champion of that view really up until now. And in terms of have I changed my view at all? Well, I mean, I'm shocked how long this whole thing's gone on for. I would never have, you know, never have thought that, uh, almost two years on would be talking about this. I think that's just extraordinary. And I was wrong about the vaccines and how quickly they'd arrive. I guess I was skeptical based on history and based on, the conventional view that these vaccines would take many years to develop but but as it as it turned out they arrived much sooner and they appear to have had some effectiveness uh, certainly in um reducing illness uh so i was wrong about that but but really i haven't changed my view on anything else yeah uh, that's that's a great point i i remember thinking that myself that it, you know what's going to happen here if it takes five years to develop these things <laughs> can't we can't keep doing this for five years can we but uh, I think a lot of politicians kind of got bailed out by how quickly they arrived and were able to kind of say, okay, well, that's yes, exactly. That's the and they could justify what they'd done by that too. They could say, well, you know, the lockdowns make sense because we were just waiting for the vaccines. And, you know, there is some yeah. internal logic to that, even though I still think the lockdowns were very wrong and a you know, grievous 
assault on human rights, which would never have happened. And of course, you know, barely effective anyway, as you know. But right. Uh, but even if they were effective, you know, even if they did work, so to speak, you know, I still think there'd be a good case that they're wrong, and I'd probably still argue that case. I mean, the yeah. fact is that they haven't worked and it's extremely embarrassing for uh, for proponents of them to try to make a coherent empirical argument that they have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on the like, early on in the United States. I mean, you're you're Australian, but you live here in the U.S., you're Washington correspondent. Um, so how much do you think the political climate of the U.S. played into the the kind of early on the policies of, of COVID during the first year or so? Um Related, kind of specifically, would masks and, and kind of these symbols of taking COVID seriously have maintained the same level of, level of importance if there had been a different president, for example, do you think? Yeah, look, it's a good question. And I think the fact that Trump was president uh, polarised the issue more because early on um, uh, he expressed doubt about the effectiveness of lockdowns and masks. I know that. I mean, I was actually living in Australia at the very start of it, uh, but certainly the US is, is followed very closely in Australia. Um and we say back home this thing called Trump derangement syndrome. I assume it's a phrase here as well, but oh, yeah. it's kind of a joke that, you know, a lefties uh, are vulnerable to this, to this disease. And whenever <laughs> Trump says something is good, they must say it's bad. And I think that was, you know, part of this extraordinary polarisation that we have to champion these things that Trump uh, didn't want. And look, it was the, in the UK as well, and I know that's that's less of a focus in the US, but the Johnson government was in power too. And and Boris Johnson very early said similar things to Trump that, look, we should just not, you know, we should not overreact. These things, masks don't work. You know, lockdowns don't work. We don't want to do that. And of course, as you know, the British government changed its tune in a few weeks. But, uh, but, but I think there was a similar phenomenon there as well. And so, yes, you know, to answer your question, yes, I think the US does play a huge role in how the Western world responds and also how they politically perceive the response as being a left or a right wing issue. That's very interesting. And uh, it, so one question that I, I just kind of comes, it came up to me a second ago is it, we ask a lot of people, I've asked a lot of people, I've been asked myself, why do you think the shift happened so much with, with Boris Johnson and, and Trump and all these governments kind of going back on what they were saying about mass and lockdowns early on? You know, what, what do you think were the underlying reasons behind it? Yeah, look, it's a really good question, and we don't really know the answer. I mean, of course, it was the Italian government that was the first Western government to follow China down the lockdown path. And as as you well know, every pandemic plan that was written by a Western country either explicitly ruled out lockdowns as insane or, <laughs> or did not mention them at all. Um, something happened in the middle of March 2020, the second half of March, when all Western governments uh, did this, and I think it was... I think it's just basic political economy that it's pretty costless politically to introduce these lockdowns because if you do it, um, you can't be blamed for not doing anything. And if everyone else is doing it, you can't be blamed for doing it. Yeah. So it's just basic political calculus. Now, I mean, of course, that's kind of horrifying calculus for the general public because it means they get subjected to the most awful rules just, just for the political benefit of the leaders. But, look, I think that's a lot to it. And also there's, of course, the modelling that that was produced by Imperial College, uh, Neil Ferguson famously predicting extraordinary numbers of deaths, millions of deaths within six months or so, which never, never happened. Um, it was the most ridiculous modelling, but that scared the world. I mean, it freaked the world out. And and also it sent the media into, you know, paroxysms of, of hysteria and and 
you know, basically scared the daylights out of the Western world. And I think, I think if anyone's culpable for, for all of the horrible things that have happened on the COVID front, I think, you know, you'd have to point to the media, which I'm a member of, uh, but the bulk of it was, was very hysterical. And I think it scared people and then governments responded to that fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, many politicians in private completely agree with you and me on these issues. I mean, I've spoken to them, but they're incapable of saying, saying that in public because, well, they can now more, but certainly a year or two ago they could not <laughs> because yeah. they'd be howled down. Yeah. Uh, speaking of lockdowns and, and tough COVID policies, I, obviously you, you write for an Australian news outlet, you're Australian. So I wanted to get your sense of what the public opinion in Australia has been like maybe over time uh, with regards to you know, what many see is a very draconian COVID policy in, uh, in Australia. So has there been, yeah, has there been, you know, a lot of universal support, near universal? Has there been any significant kind of pushback or, or response to the policies there? Well, look, the first point to make is it's been very popular, these very strict policies, uh, kind of the whole time, really. I mean, there's there's been some decline in popularity, I'd say, over the past, you know, three to six months as people just get sick of this. And I think more and more people realise that many of the measures are uh, are dubiously effective, but uh, Australia's experience is really in two phases. I mean, 2020, we pretty much missed COVID entirely. So there was the first six-week lockdown that, that pretty much all Western cities had around the world. You know, we had those in Sydney, Melbourne, etc. cetera. Uh, but COVID never took off. There was a, a blip in the second half of 2020 in Victoria, our second biggest state, um, where supposedly a security guard slept with someone in quarantine who had COVID and then it escaped and got into the community and about five or 600 people subsequently died over the next three or four months from COVID in Melbourne. And look, I don't know whether it was a security guard. Certainly that's what the media said and that's what most people would say was the reason. But, I mean, who really knows how the virus evolved there? But certainly that's what prompted the beginning of seven lockdowns in Victoria, seven Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable to even say. So they had viciously uh, strict lockdowns, brutal. They even had curfews, I think 9pm at night, you couldn't be outside, or maybe it was 10pm, mm-hmm. I can't remember, but just, just unbelievable rules that really hadn't been seen anywhere else in the world, I don't think. Then I, I, I again, France and Spain had very strict lockdowns too, but they're certainly extremely strict uh, following very few cases. And the virus eventually fizzled out. Uh, there and then it wasn't until the middle of last year that it really took off pretty much everywhere in Australia and that's when the rest of the world started taking notice of the you know the tear gas the massive protests which were occurring uh, the police the helicopters you know screaming at people on the beach the quarantine centers uh, you know it was it was pretty extraordinary and by that time I was living in the US and and I was just shocked by the whole thing I mean I was ashamed too actually I was really ashamed as an Australian at how just crazy and hysterical the response was and just how stupid if you ask me i mean that's obviously my view but just embarrassingly stupid when there was a wealth of data out there as you and i know that shows that these measures basically do very little at at best um so look it was uh yeah it's and they're still popular that's that's the depressing thing and and one of the lessons over the past two years is the extraordinary faith that people have in their governments uh not so much here maybe in the US, but certainly in Australia, uh, the obedience of people is just remarkable. And mm. I think, you know, you can maybe partly explain that by in Australian history, the governments have never really been seen as the enemy of, of the people like they have been in the US and other countries, so so we don't have that. But nevertheless, 
just the extraordinary faith in what the government says and that the motives of the government are as you know as pure as the snow it's it's just it's shocked me hmm. so that's that was related to kind of my next question for you and, and it sounds like you might have answered it but i was going to ask have you been surprised by what the people in australia have been willing to put up with in terms of the strict lockdowns interventions and not being able to travel between states for example um, but it sounds like you might not be surprised because it, it might be kind of built into their to the psyche there. Is that yeah, accurate? Yeah, look, I mean, we've justified it now kind of after the fact by kind of referring to Australia's history as a former penal colony and always having very strict governments. I mean, our state governments were, were except for a few exceptions, prisons. Um, and, you know, early on in the early 1800s, they had very strict rules about alcohol consumption and being outside because but at that point they were, you know, largely dealing with prisoners or former prisoners. Uh, so that's that's in the psyche, I guess. As I said, there's a there's a general faith in the benevolence of government because you know Australia's a wealthy country. Uh, you know, it's never had any revolutions or civil wars or anything like that. Um, but nevertheless, yeah. Look, I I was surprised by the fact people were okay, for instance, with the Victorian police actually going inside a woman's house, invading a woman's house, and arresting her for simply posting on a Facebook site that she was against lockdowns. Now, now that actually happened. <laughs> it actually happened. Wow. Um, yeah. That was like the second half of 2020. And it was a reminder to me at least, although as I've, as I've probably indicated, not many Australians seem to care, but that there are no human rights in Australia whatsoever. I mean, absolutely none. I mean, if the government decides, you know, if the state government decides that there's a so-called emergency, it can really do anything it wants including invading people's houses without warrants and arresting them for merely for typing something on a website. I mean, that's that's the extent of the power of Australia's state governments. And that's been a real shock to me because our states, are just like the US in a sense, they were independent countries, you know, more or less with uh, their own governors and they answered to the British Crown and they never had constitutions. And when Australia united as a country in 1901, uh, the Commonwealth government, the federal government, does have a constitution with some limitation on its powers, but the states that make it up do not. And I think that's that's been the real wake-up call for Australians who care about these things, is that the state governments can do whatever they want. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so you mentioned uh, a minute ago that, that there's been a kind of a, a big surge of infections and, and hospitalizations as well over the past few months. Um, have people there started to question the wisdom of the policy at all uh you know obviously australia's had extraordinary success rolling out the vaccines they, uh, early on it was slow yes. but now it's taken up where it's a huge uptake there um and it seemed like that was kind of their policy was was wait until the vaccination rates to try to prevent these increases and unfortunately it, somehow the population still has these huge increases so has there been any surprise about that there or uh, any questioning of of the wisdom of the policy look not really a great deal of questioning of the wisdom of the policy and i think this is because throughout covid uh, the restrictions have been so punishing on so many people that there's a real desire to think that they were the right thing to do, regardless of what the data says. And yes, it is, you know, it is extraordinary. Look around the world, not just Australia, you look at you know, countries like Israel and other highly vaccinated countries have had, you know, huge outbreaks in COVID and even significant numbers of deaths. I mean, Australia had most of its deaths after like 90% of people were vaccinated. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. uh, that's not what you would have expected from first principles. Um, uh, but those facts rarely get an airing in the press, uh, you know, certainly not by the government. There's an extraordinary reluctance to, to criticise vaccines at all. You know, they're, they're, 
they're kind of considered almost like you know some sort of religious requirement and and you must kind of venerate them at all times uh regardless of what the data says about them and anyone who even you know dares to criticize it is going to be called an anti-vaxxer uh so that so that creates a great deal of reluctance in the public space at least to criticize the vaccines and so yeah look i mean i think people know that there's been a wave of hospitalizations but they still support these policies by and large uh you know i guess you could say it's it's a it's a level a sort of national cognitive dissonance hmm. um, but i don't think australia's unique in that regard i think a lot of countries have it to to a greater or lesser extent i mean certainly not parts of the united states where i think uh you know that's it's been wonderful to see such a skepticism here in some states at least of of these measures but uh but yeah i think cognitive dissonance nationally explains explains that in australia yeah uh so we kind of mentioned how the government doesn't necessarily provide all, all the information or at least provide all the perspective. But one thing they have done and that I was kind of stunned to see was, uh, at least in the Northern Territory in Australia, they made some very exclamatory statements uh, about you know, locking down unvaccinated people and all the, the language and rhetoric you use seemed, seemed really kind of extreme. And so I was wondering, was there any pushback against them for saying that and maintaining this you know, lockdown for the unvaccinated as a policy? And uh, from the outside, at least, it seems kind of upsetting that, that this demonization of others, and we've done, we've done it here too, but yes. this demonization of others has been tolerated or, or even encouraged. Yes, look, it's a, it's a sad insight into um, human nature, I think, uh, this kind of pile on to minorities, which in this case manifested itself in the direction of the so-called unvaccinated, uh, you know, whatever that means, uh, given they wear out in four months. So, <laughs> so, I mean, I don't really know what that means. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's depressing. And, you know, to specifically answer no, there wasn't much of a pushback. I mean, you know, mostly uh, uh, that leader, Michael Gunner, the leader of the Northern Territory, you know, he was just seen as, as you know, uh, making the tough decisions, so to speak, uh, you know. And, and at the end of the day, Australian politicians are extremely sensitive to public opinion. Because we have compulsory voting in Australia, everyone has to vote. So what the average person thinks or what the median person thinks is very important. And they do all their, you know, their focus groups and their polling. So so pretty much Australia's political leaders just say what they think everyone thinks. So mm. the sad thing is that, you know, Michael Gunner said that uh, because he thought that that would be popular in the Northern Territory. And it was. Uh, and if you look at... If you look down at Victoria, where the Premier there, Dan Andrews, uh, I mean, he overall presided over the strictest and, in my view, most disastrous regime in Australia throughout, you know, throughout the pandemic. I mean, I, I would say it's the greatest peacetime disaster in Australian history, uh, Victoria. He is now, you know, his popularity is like 60%. <clears throat> hmm. right? His approval rating 60%. And there's going to be an election later this year. And he's expected to easily win. So, so that gives you an idea of how popular these these measures you know, have been, and uh, and it's depressing that people cheer for for these sorts of measures. You know, like I say, it is an insight into human nature and how fragile uh, human rights and and uh, classical liberalism are. I mean, people don't really care much for it, uh, and I think it's been a wake up call to many people on the right of politics who have liked in the past to imagine that they are the people's champion, that they're you know, that they're kind of up against the elites and they're arguing the case for the ordinary man. Well, the ordinary man uh, for the past two years has cheered for massive restrictions and 
the suspension of, of basic human rights and and for cracking down on free speech, all of these things uh, the ordinary man has wanted. And that's quite sad. I mean, for me, it's a very it's a very sad outcome of this whole thing. It absolutely is. It's uh, it's a lot of great insights there. I think that, that you hit the nail on the head and it's, it's very upsetting to see. And I think we've learned a lot. We've all learned a lot about this over the last couple of years. Maybe kind of change some preconceived notions about who people actually are and how they think. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on, on what the end game is for a lot of these policies in Australia. I mean, you know, a lot of the United States has, has gone back to normal, at least temporarily. Um, it, are they going to kind of permanently reorganize their society around COVID policy or, or will things really go back to mm. you know 2019 normal there? Well, look, I think 2019 is going to be some way off. Uh, and when I say that, probably at least a year. Uh, and it's been heartening looking at the success of US states that have dumped all of their mandates. I think that's that's an inspiration and an example to Australians that we don't have to have all these restrictions. And also probably even more so because the UK resonates more in Australian culture than the US, you know, for obvious historical reasons. And the fact that the UK has pretty much dumped every single regulation, as far as I know, I mean, the whole lot, the vaccine passports, all of it, Mm-hmm. I think that is very uh, kind of that's inspiring or that's that offers me some hope that that Australian states will do the same. But but right now, uh, you know, there, there are still vaccine mandates effectively in Australia. I mean, I like how the, the various government websites, they, they, they typically say at the top that uh, vaccination is optional in Australia and you don't have to get a vaccine. But then they say, <laughs> except if you work in these following industries, which is about 40% of the population. So, <laughs> right. so uh, you know, it's not really it's not really optional at all. Um, so, look, the end game, I hope, is that people get sick of it. And, look, just on the current war uh, between Russia and Ukraine, which is obviously a shocking tragedy, uh, but I think it's making people realise that, look, you know, here's a group of people in Ukraine suffering enormous hardship, you know, real hardship, and... You know why on earth are we still worried about this ridiculous virus with a you know with a fatality rate of you know 0.000 or whatever it is percent? Um, you know, so I so I think maybe that the fact the news has shifted so much to another issue, uh, people will forget about COVID and won't pay as much attention to the you know the various COVID dashboards and counters and all that sort of rubbish that we've been subjected to for two years. Right. It, it puts that all in perspective a bit. Exactly. Uh, That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and it, it absolutely does. At least hopefully does. Um, so speaking of, of kind of ridiculous perspective, lack of perspective, uh, what was your sense of what people there thought about the Novak Djokovic situation? I mean, the news cycle moved so quickly. I think people have already forgotten that it even happened. Yes, but, yes, I know. Yeah, you know, he was he was literally kicked out of the country after uh, it seemed like he followed mm. all the rules. So were people there supportive of it or did they see it for being kind of, kind of a political stunt? Uh, what, what was the response there? Oh, look, I think, I think more, more informed observers realised it was a political stunt uh, that worked in the government's favour. But, you know, by and large, it was extremely popular to kick him out. I mean, I think there were, there were polls showing 70 or 80% support for kicking him out, which, is, hmm. which by any poll is a lot. That's a huge majority when any political question is asked, as you know. Um, and it was... The interesting thing for me is most people realised the rules were ridiculous because COVID was rife in Australia at the time. So, so the argument that we couldn't let him in in case he had COVID was just obviously stupid. Uh, so people tended to, to, to say that, well, look, they're our rules and they might be stupid, but he's got to follow the rules like everyone else. Uh, you know, then there were others who said, well, he did follow the rules. 
(laughs) but it was a disagreement between uh, the Victorian government and the federal government in Canberra. Uh, The Victorian government, uh, somewhat ironically, said that he could come. And then after he arrived, the federal government realised that there's actually some uh, box or something that he didn't tick properly uh, uh, from their point of view. And so then they they kicked him out using this arbitrary uh, kind of immigration power that the that the minister has in emergencies to basically kick out whoever he wants. I mean, it's a, it's a completely arbitrary power, and it goes back to a point I made earlier about the power of Australian governments. I mean, there is no human rights bill or, or act in Australia, so, so a lot of these laws that have been on the books for decades in, in many cases, they have little tiny clauses that no one ever paid any attention to, you know, kind of part 25, you know, part 4, B, C, D, etc., which say that in an emergency... You know, the minister can do whatever he wants. <laughs> you know, and I think yeah. we've seen a lot of those powers used in Australia, and that was one of them. Yeah, I hope that that's a lesson we all learned too, that if we need to kind of curtail these emergency powers because it, it really can get out of hand incredibly quickly with Absolutely. the politicians. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, moving back to the U.S., uh, we've seen recently a lot of these jurisdictions and counties, cities, uh, states lifting mask mandates, other kind of COVID policies seemingly out of nowhere all at once. Um, and there's been a lot of conversation on the internet about, you know, is it polling data showing it's unpopular, memos going out. Uh, so you're in Washington. And, and from what you've heard, do you think political concerns are the main reason for all these dramatic changes? Yeah, well, look, I think, you know, I think political concerns were the reason for them being introduced in the first place. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was talking to someone reasonably senior at the DC government, actually, about four, maybe four or five months ago. And even they said, and I was surprised that they said it, actually, that that mask mandates were purely performative. <laughs> you know, I, mean, <laughs> wow. I mean, like that wasn't the official view. He was just an employee, but nevertheless a fairly senior employee. Uh, and so I thought, oh, that's really interesting that someone senior in the DC government thinks that this whole thing's performative. Uh, but look, to answer more specifically, it was a great coincidence, wasn't it, that, that they all uh, that all ended by the State of the Union speech on Tuesday. Uh, and it, it did happen very, very quickly. Um my sense is there was there was a lot of you know that the, there was political polling involved in this decision because I mean if you look at the DC for instance they introduced a, a mandate for vaccines honestly five weeks ago or so you know they went to the great trouble of rolling it out you know and there was significant administrative effort I mean as someone who's who once worked in government I know these things you know take a lot of effort to roll out these new policies. And then it was gone just five weeks later, which yeah. you know, which cannot have been the intention when it was introduced. So, so therefore, I do think that the polls have changed quite dramatically across the US, and you're seeing all these governors and mayors and so forth uh, dump these policies, quite regardless of the fact that there's still 1,500 people dying a day in the United States, which is you know almost near the peak, right? I mean, it's right. you know it's high, it's a high level. Uh, and that could be used to justify keeping the restrictions in place, but it's not. So, so I think people are moving on. You know, the great test, of course, is going to be if there's a seventh wave uh, between now and November. Uh, that's going to be very, very interesting to watch. Yeah, and that's something I wanted to ask you about as well. Uh, you know, do you think that in areas like D.C., California, New York, I mean, obviously somewhere like Florida, is, they're done, but uh, in in DC and, and all these other areas, uh, will we see a return to to the vaccine passports and the widespread mask mandates if there's a new variant or, like you say, a seventh wave in the next couple of months? Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's hard to know. I mean, I don't think you'll ever see lockdowns and that sort of thing again. You might see masks come back, but even then, 
uh, a lot of people are just so sick of it. I don't – it will depend on the polling, of course, because the midterms are, are approaching and that's a particularly important time uh, to be popular. So if people are over it, then I don't think they will come back in. And then what's going to be interesting is trying to see the justification on the democratic side of politics as to why they're not back in, right? Because, mm. of course, they're going to have to say, oh, it's different science or whatever, but, you know, the cold hard reality is that it will be pure politics. And if that happens, if that occurs, I mean, it will be, well, it'll be good for our side of the argument, if you like. I mean, not that that's, you know, much of a saviour for society, but right. it will show you, it will illustrate very clearly that this whole thing, all the restrictions were really were really about politics, not about so-called science at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but, look, we don't know yet. You know, maybe they will come back in. Who knows? I mean, I certainly hope they don't. Uh, but, yeah, we just have to wait and see. And it's a, it's, a, it's a crystal ball on that one. I don't know. Yeah, so so much of this is is so performative. You kind of mentioned that a minute ago, where you you see the policy is you get on an airplane, you put a mask on, you land in Florida, literally never wear a mask for a week that you're there on vacation. People that live in New York and New Jersey and DC, but then you put the mask back on for that that two hour flight. No, it's uh, you know, it's become like a virtue signaling. Uh, uh, someone called it a MAGA mask for <laughs> sorry, a MAGA hat for uh, for liberals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's it's a bit like that. And, yeah. you know, what's just, just on the mask to dwell? I mean, what's extraordinary is even, you know, the doyens of public health like Lena Wen have said that, that they're performative, cloth masks are performative, but overwhelmingly, you know, that's what people still wear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, it just, it's extraordinary. Like, why? Anyway, yeah. sorry, go on. No, it's, it, no, I appreciate that. It is, it is crazy when you, when you really sit down and think about it. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts. Obviously, you write for a major media outlet uh, in the, in the Australian. That's that's a significant paper. And so, have you felt any pressure writing for them to cover COVID in a particular way, or have you been able to kind of say what you think or write about what you want? Uh, well, actually, no. And this is a good opportunity for me to 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 kind of give a shout out to my employer, uh, News Corp, uh, which has been extremely supportive of me actually throughout the whole thing. They've never uh, said to write about this or or don't write about that. Uh, you know, so so no, I haven't. I mean, I you know, I haven't I come under pressure from from any editors on COVID. The only pressure is is probably from other journalists, not 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 just at News Corp, but throughout the Australian media industry. Uh, they've been very pro restriction, and so there's been a lot of vicious, you know, vicious attacks on me. Uh, you know, mainly from from outspoken members of the general public, but also from other journalists, which I found very very depressing because I. I never like to attack other journalists, even if I vehemently disagree with them, um, you know, personally, I mean, uh, uh, because, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a shrinking bunch of us. It's a hard job and, uh, you know, I don't think that we should be attacking each other personally. But so, so the pressure has come from, you know, from other journalists to conform. And, and what's worried me is how so many journalists, uh, you know, basically became cheerleaders for the government uh, through, uh, through this period. Um, and I, I thought that that was very unusual given what the role of the fourth estate should be. Uh, certainly not to, to cheer on extraordinary restrictions on human rights. Right. Um, so that's so, yeah, so, so the pressure has come from the group thing, not from my employer, which has been very supportive. Um, yeah. That's, that's great to hear. And I've, I literally have made that exact point many times about that journalism is, as I understood, it was supposed to be kind of speaking truth to power and, and questioning authority. And it seems like a lot of people have not, uh, held up to that standard in the last couple of years. Uh, so 
you you wrote a piece back in December, basically saying that you you caught COVID and it was no big deal. <laughs> and if you're on Twitter, <laughs> many of us have seen you know these these twenty plus long tweet threads from from Twitter doctors or you know people with a blue check mark uh, describing how they you know their their experience with COVID and if they coughed two more times today than the day before or something equally absurd. Yes. Um, so, so why did they talk about COVID like that? Do you think is it, is it just for the, the likes and the retweets and the attention? In the column, I just kind of you know made light of it and, and just stressed the fact that this is the experience for 99% of people at least who have COVID. And, and, you know, I was attacked by, including by lots of other journalists for that column, you know, quite viciously. And, you know, I, I, I really don't understand why. And yes, it was the blue checks. Look, I think hmm. I think amongst the blue checks, you know, who are largely journalists, um, there's a disproportionate number of authoritarians and virtue signalers and moralizers and intellectuals. And you know, if you read Hayek or any of those other serious thinkers, you know, that's what that's what he argues that those sorts of people, uh, the authoritarians, are hugely overrepresented in in the intellectual class. And I think that's that's what you've seen in the COVID experience. And I think it explains largely why so many journalists have barracked for more government control and have screamed and abused people who don't line up with what the mob want or think. And, you know, it's, it's extremely sad. So another column you recently wrote was about the State of the Union, which just happened here a few days ago. And so I had a few questions about it. Uh, First of all, and we kind of touched on this, but how convenient was the timing that all the masks in Congress were removed right before his speech? Uh, and also, what did you think of it and what did he get wrong? What was kind of what were you hoping to, to express in that column? And, and more importantly, how well are the Iranian people holding up against Vladimir Putin? <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was very funny, I must say, the fact that Biden said Iranian <laughs> instead of Ukrainian. And he said it quite clearly, too. Like it wasn't yeah. like it was, a, you know, it could have been one or the other. It, it was definitely Iranian. Um but look, I mean, that was that was just a reflection of the you know bumbling and fumbling nature of the delivery. And you know, people say that that doesn't matter. But look, I think it does. I mean, he's the leader of the free world. He's been a politician for you know a senior politician for more than forty years, and he must have rehearsed that speech multiple times. And uh, and he still you know it, it, it you know he he gave it very poorly, I would argue. And, but, but of course, it's not just that, it's the content too. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was a real opportunity, I thought, for the Democrats to, you know, shift their political direction. And let's face it, their political direction has delivered him the lowest approval rating almost of any president in history. So clearly the political direction is not a success. You know, whether you think it's right or wrong, it's not a success. Mm-hmm. And I was just shocked by the fact that it was all the same talking points from last year, you know, about Build Back Better, about infrastructure, there were no new announcements in the speech to, you know, to kind of take the media by surprise. The only new announcement was in the foreign policy part, which was which was actually quite a small part of the speech. I was surprised about that too, um, where he banned Russian flights in and out of the US. But that's that's a tokenistic, negligible uh, policy. Uh, there was really nothing new on the foreign policy front or the domestic front. Uh, and on COVID, which, of course, is what we're talking about here, I was particularly surprised because, you know, here was an opportunity to just say, look, Let's say we've we've beaten it, we've done it, it's over, you know, and, and all our wonderful measures have worked. I mean, that's what I would have done. I would have said, look, the measures have worked, we've done it, rah, 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 let's move on. But no, he talked about new variants. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I mean, he talked about mm. new variants, he talked about masking. In fact, masking got more mentioned than China, which I thought was extraordinary. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. 
and testing. I thought, oh, my God, do people want to hear about that? I mean, I certainly don't. But as we discussed earlier, the poll suggests a lot of Americans don't want to hear that either. So I, I thought that was very weird. So, look, I mean, I gave it a 5 out of 10 at best. Um, I don't think it's going to help him in a way I thought that it might have helped him in the polls. Yeah. Um, and speaking of that, and it was kind of my last question I had for you, uh, you know, the conversation has definitely shifted over time in the United States, but a lot of other countries are still very much still in, in the throes of, of mandates and, and vaccine passports and international travels is not the same as it was. You can't just hop on a plane and, and land in Paris without jumping through hoops and filling out paperwork and all this other stuff. So where do we think we go from here? Is that is that going to become a permanent feature now? Is that the new taking your shoes off at the yes. airport? Or no, is that going to hopefully... It's funny you mentioned going to Paris. I, I'm kind of itching to get over to Europe, actually, and I, I kind of have... I keep putting it off because of just all of the administrative drama with going, the testing on this side, the testing on that side. You know, I'd be forced to get a booster, which I don't really want to get. I mean, I'll probably be compelled to because it'll be the rule. Uh, but, you know, I've had COVID, so I feel... You know, I figure I don't need the booster at least for quite a while, but I but I understand the French government I think requires it. Uh, so yeah, so that's that's kind of uh, a bit on my mind. But just just in general, with all the lockdowns and interventions, look, I mean, again, you know, we kind of discussed this earlier. I I hope people just get sick of it and and kind of move on to the next issue, which may or may not be this uh, tragedy in Ukraine, uh, which is dominating the media right now. I mean, I think, I think one of the funny things is that you know, a lot of the public health cheer squad, um, a public health cheer squad are feeling very lonely or ignored right now because the media has moved on to something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I hope that, that we do just move on and they don't come back. I mean, lockdowns in particular, I think, have been such a disaster that I expect the next two or three years there'll be more and more academic research coming out showing just what a disaster they were. And so I don't suspect that they'll be coming back. Uh, but as for, for vaccines and masks and that sort of thing, because they're so-called relatively low-cost restrictions, uh, supposedly, I think they're more likely to come back than the lockdowns. So, but look, you know, we've just had a two years which has been an extraordinary learning experience about ourselves, about our friends and colleagues and about governments. And, you know, it'll take years and years to to kind of assess what was good and bad out of it. And, you know, frankly, from my point of view, most of it was bad, but uh, there's certainly lots of assessing to do. Yeah. Well, I, that was great. Thank you so much for all of your answers. Thank you so much for your That's time. Awesome. Yeah. Please, uh, everybody go follow Adam on Twitter. It's Adam underscore Creighton and, and check out his work at The Australian. It's it's fantastic. And he's always posting new, interesting stories. So please go read those. Uh, and yeah, thank you again, Adam, for doing this. No worries, Anne. And I hope the book is a bestseller. Appreciate it.